Welcome to episode number 43 of Off the Shelf. Sing it, Sandra. If you have some questions in the corners of your mind and traces of discouragement and peace you cannot find, reflections of your past seem to face you every day. But this one thing I do know that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Hi, my name is Rod Bergen and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Off the Shelf podcast. Off the Shelf is now being heard in over 100 countries, and we are glad you could join us. The aim of Off the Shelf is to help people know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. The podcast is primarily directed at followers of the message of William Branham and former followers like ourselves. This week, we are continuing our interview with John Collins, the author of the Seek the Truth website. I'm being accused of not answering the questions, but rather choosing to defend the prophet. Now, I am so happy to defend the prophet at any time. At any time. That is why I've even titled the title of my message, Defending the Prophet. Because I don't want anyone to think that I'm not defending the Prophet. Because I'm actually defending the Prophet. Because I believe that is right. So I'm not a person that runs away from these questions. Rod, I'd like to take a minute for the listeners who aren't familiar with these issues and describe some of the fundamental issues that we've identified where William Branham was clearly not truthful. And I think it would be helpful to anybody who has encountered this pastor or others like him who present the issues that we've found in the way that this pastor does in his sermon. This is a common problem that I've ran into, and quite frankly, it's one that helps people to escape when they see what is going on. These pastors, whenever they, they try to defend the message against those who are providing information, such as you and myself, what they try to do is they try to find insignificant issues that could be debatable either way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They try to find some that, you know, we have some, we have facts on our website that are undeniable facts, undeniable that William Branham was not truthful. We also have some, because of all of these undeniable facts, we have an array of questionable facts. And these are the ones that I clearly say could possibly be true. But if you take them with the sum of everything else that we found, I myself personally question most of them. Yeah. But for the listeners who aren't aware that there are, you know, completely fully documented examples of William Branham not being truthful, I think it would be helpful if, if we shared some of these. And 
these these are not in any order of priority, but these are some of the big ones that we've came across. William Branham stated that the newspapers in the United States and Canada reported a light on the Ohio River in 1933. It was packed on the Associated Press across the nation. Been out as 1933. She was standing there, but she heard the voice, but didn't see the light. Or even the newspaper photographers saw the light. But she was quite young then, and about 12 years old, and she never seen the light. She was watching the people, many were fainting, and it just stayed there just about one minute, and then went right straight back up into the skies again. And the newspapers put a great article, Mystic Light Appears Over over a Local Baptist Minister While Baptizing. Went all the way into Canada, got on the Canada press. Whenever you, you know, we have access to newspapers now through sites like um, newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com. And for those that are living in my area, in Jeffersonville, every single newspaper that has been published is on microfiche in the Jeffersonville Public Library. You can go across the river to the Louisville Public Library and on Microfish, you have the Jeffersonville paper and the Louisville paper. And these are local papers. These are local papers. We have every single issue of those papers. Which, which Voice of God said were destroyed, right? They said they were destroyed. And, you know, in, in fact, I was shocked that when they weren't, because that's what I grew up thinking all my life. There was a period of time during the 1937 flood that the paper stopped publishing. But when these papers are issued and they're sent out, they're not just sent to the Jeffersonville area. You can also go to Indianapolis, and there are archives of these papers. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, there's only a few. But we have closely examined these papers, and we have not found a single report of this incident whatsoever. William Branham, the way that he makes – the way that he explains this is – for readers who, for listeners who don't know how this works, William Branham is, is explaining that this story was so significant that it made the Associated Press. The Associated Press spread the story nationally, and the international press picked it up, and it went into Canada. He's explaining an, an event that was not just in the Jeffersonville newspaper, but across the entire nation. And nobody has been able to give us even a single issue describing this event. Now, we should say that there was one newspaper report which does talk about services being held by William Branham. It's dated June the 2nd, 1933. It's from the Jefferson Evening News, and it simply states this. 14 conversions are reported in a tent meeting conducted at 8th and Pratt Streets by the Reverend William Branham. Period. The end. That's it. No light, no baptismal, no voice, nothing. Exactly. You know, William Branham described hundreds of people there. This was at a time whenever Jeffersonville was relatively a small city. Had the, had the number of people attended that he claimed been in Jeffersonville at that time, it actually would have made national news. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he says they were in the thousands, right? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So that's one issue. 
let's go to another one. William Branham claimed that he traveled around the world seven times when there's no indication that he even traveled around the world once. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a listener who's, who's hearing us talk about this for the first time, they would ask, well, why is this important? If you are a message believer and you actually place value on, quote unquote, the message, you're going to study the message and you're going to examine what he had to say about these places, not because of their location on the earth, but because of the spiritual, um, the spiritual events that he associates to these places. And as you and I know that some of the things that he says just are not even true at all. Yeah. So this is a question that, you know, had he traveled around the world as he claimed, this would be something that anybody could prove. Yeah. We know we've done the research. He didn't go around even once. You know, this question, Rod, did he travel the world? There are a lot of things that we have found William Branham saying to mislead people from another fact, to distract them from another fact. An example of this, William Branham would often claim that he struggled with a poor memory. And he would say things like, um, what's that girl's name? Oh, Marilyn Monroe. And then you go to the very next city, he's saying, what's that girl's name? Oh, Marilyn Monroe. And he repeatedly does this when after so long, you're going to remember Marilyn Monroe's name. <laughs> yeah, you'd figure. You, you know, I believe personally, and this is my opinion, this is not a fact, I believe that William Branham was trying to distract people from the underlying truth of where he actually did go on these trips around the world. One of the things that he says is that he and a group of ministers took a side trip while they were in Europe and they went to Pigalle, Place Pigalle. This is this was at that time the sin capital of the world. It would make Vegas seem like a holy temple. It was the homosexual capital of the world, and the the sin of the world was migrating to this place because it openly allowed nudity, sex and more inside of this location. And he visits there, and the interesting part is, he tells his listeners, if you ever get a chance, show your daughters this place. Wow. I remember as a child hearing this, I had no idea what this place was, and I remember hearing that statement, and to me, it, it really didn't matter. So he wants us to show his daughters this. But now that I go back and look at the history of Pig Alley, Oh my gosh, I would never show my daughter this place <laughs> if my life depended on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that again, that's my opinion. That part is not fact, but there there are some interesting reasons why I believe that William Branham was not truthful in some of these statements. Yeah, yeah. Another one. <laughs> this one some of the some of the ways that he is untruthful borders on ridiculous, but this one in particular you have to ask yourself, why did he say it? One of the things he claimed was that his Bible was miraculously saved in the 1937 flood 
because the pulpit floated up to the ceiling in the flood and then floated back down, and his Bible was miraculously saved. Yeah. Now, we found a newspaper article describing this fact. This is a fact that I can actually prove happened. But I can also say that this fact did not happen in William Branham's church. This was another newspaper article uh, describing an event that happened in another church, not the Branham Tabernacle, for another denomination entirely, and their Bible was saved, not William Branham's. So was he parroting this news story in the future to, to listeners who were not aware that this happened in Jeffersonville, or did this actually happen? That's the question we have to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that leads to another one, which I, uh, we've made a video of it, uh, which you can find on YouTube, is why did the story that he told of the man from Windsor change so drastically over time? You know, Mark Twain said, the good thing about the truth is you never have to remember it. But if you're not being truthful, you have to remember what you told. And if this had happened to him, you would think the story would have been generally consistent. It's not. You want to find out, go to the website. We'll have a link. You can do the research on your own. Just don't believe what we say. Don't take what we say as being the truth. Do the research for yourself. That's all we're asking. Exactly. One of the big ones that I've been for the past couple of years studying, because it led to so many additional facts surrounding the message and the creation of the message, I, you asked, I think, before I even did, why did William Branham change the story so significantly of the, of the healing of Congressman Upshaw? Yeah. Now, that question in itself is a big question, fundamentally devastating to the message. But if you take a step back and examine the entire scope of the influence that William Branham, that uh, Congressman Upshaw had— not with just William Branham's ministry, but with the nation in general, this becomes very, very problematic. Yeah. He ran for president, correct? More than just president. The reason prohibition exists in the United States today is because William D. Upshaw basically was a touring minister. Uh, he was a traveling evangelist and a congressman. He was a very active traveling evangelist and congressman, and he was a member of high-ranking member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. The history is too big to describe in this one episode, but I'll give you a brief summary. When the Klan was being recreated, they were trying to stop three things. This was in 1915. They did not want the African Americans and you know white males. Uh, intermarrying and mixing races. They, they firmly believed that this was anti-biblical, and that was one of the primary reasons why the Klan was reestablished. The second one is we had, we had an influx of uh, Jews and Armenians because you had you know, what was going on in Nazi Germany. You also had the Armenian Holocaust— yeah. These people were flooding into the United States. Some of the Jewish people that were coming into the United States were getting very, very high-paying white-collar jobs. 
and especially in the southern states, they did not like this. They did not want to mix the races with the Jews either. Mm-hmm. They also were against Catholicism, heavily against Catholicism. So William Upshaw, <clears throat> he, for years, he claimed he was not in the Klan, but he was sympathetic to the Klan. And he started promoting the idea that we should abolish alcohol in the entire United States. And one of the theories behind it is this, that men, whenever they were intoxicated, they would become more apt to, you know, be sexually active with these different races. And by eliminating the alcohol in the United States, they could then limit the number of interracial marriages. So Upshaw became very, very active in this. Whenever the Klan uh, was, the United States Congress, uh, Washington in general, tried to stop the Klan in about 1922, it was during their testimony under oath that it, it came out that William D. Upshaw was a member of the Klan. He and Roy Davis, William Branham's uh, mentor, first pastor, first yeah. pastor, mentor, etc. They were connected at the hip, and we find them connected throughout history as they try to rebuild the Ku Klux Klan. The fact that William Branham changes details in this story from a man who is very, very active, who actually was caught running, physically running on the floor in Congress, and Roy Davis before he was healed. Long before he was healed. In fact, I've got it on our website in, I want to say it's 19, before 1910, we have an article saying that William Upshaw was healed of his invalid condition in the early 1900s. Um, We also have him healed again by another minister before William Branham, and we have him healed by the power of Sargon, which was an alcoholic medicinal whiskey. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. Sounds like... uh... Sounds like something from Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. So I, I can think of a number of reasons why William Branham would want to be untruthful here. We've not said why he's untruthful. We just simply showed the facts. This did not happen as in the way that he said it did. When did William Branham embrace Pentecostalism? Was it as he said after the death of his wife in 1937? If so, why was his church that he preached in from 1933 to 1937, named the Pentecostal Tabernacle? That's one of, out of this list of questions that we have, that honestly is the biggest one. And it's the one that I'm sure you have noticed is evaded by message pastors in general. Because if that element of his life story is not true, the entire life story is not true. Not just one piece of it. Without... His conversion to Pentecostalism, as he claims, with God smiting his wife (laughs) and killing—I'm laughing not because she died. I'm laughing because it was so unreasonable that he was untruthful in this area. You know what my theory is, John, is is that when his wife and his daughter died, which they did, she had contracted uh, tuberculosis about a year and a half before she died, and that gradually stole her life, and then— probably because of uh, his daughter's exposure to the tuberculosis that his wife had, the daughter came down with um, tubercular meningitis and she died. 
I mean, that would have had to have a huge impact on anybody. I can't imagine how devastating that would be, regardless of the circumstances. But he had to take something out of it that he could use to make people feel sorry for him. I think so. But if you put the timeline together, we actually recently produced a informational video that examines that timeline. And if you put the timeline together, Davis comes to Jeffersonville. He basically steals half of uh, Ralph Rader's church, the brother of Paul Rader, who wrote Only Believe. Yeah. Davis is a Pentecostal minister in Jeffersonville at about 1931. We don't know when William Branham first became a Pentecostal convert. I would suspect, based off of some of the statements that he makes, that it was likely— he was likely a part of Raiders Tabernacle and then became part of um, Roy Davis's church based off of some statements that he makes. Yeah. But that was a Pentecostal church. William, you know, Roy Davis had the Pentecostal first Pentecostal church in Jeffersonville. Um, it's described in a few different ways: Pentecost, first Pentecostal church, Pentecostal Baptist. But the titles of their sermons are Pentecostal sermons. They're not Southern Baptist sermons. Yeah, I have William Branham, his first church that he attended was a Pentecostal church. There's no question. And, and, and historians will agree with that. Uh, Doug Weaver, who wrote a book on William Branham, says that in his research. Exactly. And we have the deed. We've been to the courthouse in, in Jeffersonville. Uh, after searching for vindication, found <laughs> that this was the case. His first church was named the Billy, B-I-L-L-I-E, according to the deed, the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle. And that was 1935, I believe, the deed, either 34 or 35. Yeah. For me, whenever I place all of that, you know, those are important milestones in the timeline. But the one that is the biggest for me is the, the one that he himself, William Branham himself, put together. It's in a in a pamphlet that he spread out that is called I Was Not Disobedient to the Heavenly Vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a 1945 pamphlet. Those familiar with the message have the basically the third attempt at a message, at, at a message following or a cult following, that begins the very day that Israel became a nation, which... Branham claims it's 1947. It's actually 1948, I believe. Yeah. But in this pamphlet, he identifies two attempts at creating a, at a, creating a ministry. You and I know the third attempt because that's what we were brought into. That's the visitation of the angel. Exactly. Now, we have a first attempt that began in 1936, according to William Branham's own timeline. William Branham, and also keep in mind, Roy Davis was not just a minister. He was trying to build another Ku Klux Klan, and he was a creator of evangelists. There are newspaper clippings describing his sending forth of ministers. He was creating these people. And William Branham talks about touring with him in that early church. So he is an evangelist. He is a Pentecostal evangelist. As early as 1936, and if you lay the facts that William Branham give, the newspaper give, and the courthouse give, we have Hope, his wife, who contracts TB, and I think it's January of 1936. She's deathly ill. 
we have photographs of her face. She looks like death is about to fall upon her. We have William Branham who is out touring with Mita, his second wife. And we have photographs of them touring during this time period. And then she dies. Hope, his wife, dies. I can think of a number of reasons why I myself would want to try to twist the facts into a different story. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they are very disturbing if you line them up. So going on to some other issues, John, um, Donnie Morton, was he really healed? This one blows my mind. Not just, this is not just a problem with William Branham. This is a problem with the news media and the United States publications in general. William Branham claimed to heal the boy. The father, who's embracing this flavor of divine healing Pentecostalism, he walks away claiming that the boy is healed because he's trying to claim, name it and claim it, as the saying yeah. goes. So Reader's Digest published this article, The Miracle of Donnie Morton. Whenever the boy died of the same disease that he was allegedly cured of, Reader's Digest did not publish, oops, we're sorry, we published a miracle that did not happen. Cult pastors will give you the information saying that he was healed, and they'll brag about it. The boy was healed. And they'll say, oh, it's even written up in Reader's Digest. Written in Reader's Digest. They won't give you the newspaper clipping that shows the father holding his dying son, crying his heart out, because not just is he suffering with the fact that his son is dying, this is a man who thought God had abandoned him or his faith. He he went into you know, William Branham's prayer lines, thinking that God was going to heal the boy and accepted the fact that William Branham told him that the boy was healed by God. So what's going through this man's mind as his son is dying, that is a huge story that, quite frankly, cult pastors such as this one we just listened to are hiding from their congregations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a whole bunch of other ones, and, and we, we don't have time to go through it, but you know, I, I think that what people need to do is research this stuff on their own. There are literally scores of questions which we raise on our website, John on your website, Searching for Vindication, for which there are no answers coming from message preachers. And if you don't know the answers to these questions that we raised, you should. And I would go so far to say that if you don't, you are willingly ignorant of the facts and of the truth. We try to keep our podcast to a half hour or less, so we will bring this week's episode to a close. But please come back next week for the continuation of our interview with John Collins. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage. Or you are welcome to send an email to rod at offtheshelf.life. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Jesus is the way. Oh, I know you've got mountains that you think you cannot climb. I know your skies are dark. You think the sun won't shine In case you don't know
But the word of God is true. And everything he's promised, he will do it for you. That's the reason I say. Is the 